Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. We are studying Proverbs chapter 5 because it comes after Proverbs chapter 4, and we're studying through the book of Proverbs. And the reason I bring that up is because of the subject matter to which Solomon addresses this part of the book of Proverbs. To be blunt, Solomon is going to talk to us tonight about sexual purity. He's going to talk to us about the issue of purity in a sexual dimension. You know, looking at the, how this has been handled in the church, at least in my lifetime and during the span of 30 plus years of ministry, I've witnessed two unfortunate extremes when the church comes to talk about sex and sexual purity. The first extreme is a tape series, a cassette tape series that was given to me several years ago by someone who had done about 12 weeks on the subject of sexual intimacy from the pulpit. And to be honest, he went way farther in the descriptive nature of what he was talking about than I felt comfortable with. Uh, when the Bible talks of this in the Song of Solomon, it's very uh, metaphorical and intended to let you and your imagination be worked out with the Lord and not to be graphically explained. The other extreme, though, is total avoidance of it. People just are so, pastors, preachers, teachers, are so afraid of, of saying what they shouldn't say or being improper that they, they completely disregard it. Which is unfortunate because sexual sin is so prevalent in our culture, in our society, but it's nothing new. Proverbs is about Solomon primarily getting his son Rehoboam ready to take over the kingdom. He's trying to train him to be a godly young man. It then becomes for us a way to look into um, parenting, into shepherding, into what we teach young people. It's really a curriculum for how to disciple children, how to disciple young people. And Proverbs 1 through 9 is what we've identified as the parental section of the book. Now, the parental section in Proverbs 1 to 9 is different than the rest of the book. Once you get to chapter 10, it becomes much more, shall we say, proverbial. Uh, there are little proverbs, sometimes connected, sometimes just stacked against each other. But there's not always the kind of context that there is in the first nine chapters. They stand out as fundamentally different in the way that Solomon arranged and wrote these proverbs. This is his love letter to his son. And also, as we see, it's plural to his children and how they should respond in wisdom. And as we've said over and over, the basic function of Proverbs is to instruct young people and old alike to be wise, to pursue wisdom. And the beginning of that is to understand, say it with me if you remember, that you, are, you need to be wise enough to know you're not wise enough. That means we're in a position of humility, a position of learning, a position of absorbing what God has to say. It might interest you to know that in these first nine chapters, more is said about avoiding sexual sin than avoiding any other sin in this section. And the context is parents talking to their children, talking to his son about the issue of intimacy and the issue of purity. Not only has, I think, the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, 
the devil who's out against us, who wants to pollute our minds and get us to think about God's good gifts in ungodly ways. Not only has he done that in the church where there's an overemphasis sometimes and an underemphasis, I think he's done the same thing in families and in parents. My oldest son was in the fourth grade. It was the summer between his third and fourth grade. He was playing baseball and I went to pick him up at baseball practice. And he got in the car and uh, he was riding in the back seat because my wife always ensured me that was the safest place for him to be. And I was looking at him in the, in the rear view mirror. And uh, I said, how's practice? He said, oh, it's great. Dad, what is sex? Nine years old. And I said, what do you mean? Because I didn't know if he was filling out something that said, you know, sex, male or female. And I wanted to know what he was asking. I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, between guys and girls. And wanting to kind of ferret out what he was asking, I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, dad, I don't know. But Billy, who was a really good pitcher, by the way, Billy is going to tell me on Saturday at the game. And my first thought was, not before I do. And so on Saturday morning, we got up. We went to Pete's Coffee. We had a chocolate chip muffin and a blueberry muffin. I remember that just like it was yesterday. I remember the temperature. I remember the humidity. I remember the, everything about this. And so I was sick at my stomach, nervous. And I took a deep breath and I explained everything I could about that gift of God and that deed in about three minutes. And actually, toward the end, I was thinking, maybe parent of the year. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think I nailed it. I think I, I, I explained this. There's, I've answered all the questions. This is good. And so I, I said, son, do you have any questions? And he goes, well, just one. I said, what's that? And he says, so you and mom? <laughs> and I said, well, well, of course. And he says, now we have three sons. So he said, yeah, but just three times, right? So it was very interesting to hear through a child's perspective what, what that sounds like. Sure enough, a couple of years later, my second son asked the right questions. And it took him out to breakfast. And the only question he has at the end is, is there like a, a pill or something I can take so I can never get those hormones? No, there's no such thing. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I had this big plan and curriculum for how I was gonna talk to my sons about sexual intimacy, but it kind of came on me by surprise. If you're a parent of younger children, you need to be aware that Solomon outlines that that discussion should first happen with you and your kids. And folks, let me tell you, if it doesn't, I don't care how protective you are. I don't care if your homeschool has a 40-foot high wall and a 70-foot deep moat with alligators crawling around in the moat. Someone's going to try to tell them something that's wrong about this. We can't protect them from it, nor should we. The design of this passage, the design of the first nine chapters of Proverbs is that these questions ought to be asked and answered with a child and the parent. 
If you haven't done that, there's still opportunity to talk about these things openly and in a biblical way, not inappropriately though. Now chapter five is the heart of the parental section that extends from 1.9 to 9.18 and it's right in the middle of this section and it is a complete chapter all and only devoted to the theology of intimacy. Now, we didn't choose to do this because we didn't have anything else to preach on Sunday night. It really is the next section in the book, which is why we're directing our attention to it tonight. There are five distinct discourses on sexual purity in these nine chapters. Think about that. Five complete distinct discourses on sexual purity. And Solomon is exceedingly qualified to speak on the subject of sexual excesses and sexual sin. 1 Kings 11.4 tells us that his heart had been led astray from the Lord by, get this, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That means Solomon could go the better part of three years if he wanted with a different sexual experience with a different person every day. If anyone understood the limitations, if anyone understood the joys of this, it would have been Solomon. And yet, when he turns to talk to Rehoboam, he's very specific in some ways that might surprise you in terms of his own experience. Let's dive into this. God's blueprint for sexual purity. We're gonna deal with the whole chapter, so I'll read it as we go along, if that's okay. As we dissect this chapter and unpack it, I wanna discover with you six strategies for pursuing purity. Six strategies for pursuing purity. This is Solomon's uh, message to his son. He expects Rehoboam to be listening, to be taking notes, to be applying this, and so should we. The first strategy is in verses one and two. He says, son, undertake the pursuit of biblical instruction. Undertake the pursuit of biblical instruction. Start by understanding that the Bible has something to say, that God has something to say through his word about purity. He says, verse one, my son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that your lips, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. He says, my wisdom and my understanding. Now for Solomon and Rehoboam, that was the divine wisdom God had given him. Remember 1 Kings 4, he was smarter and more wise than anyone who'd ever lived before or after except Jesus himself. It was a divine gift to be able to discern right and wrong and good and evil and lead the people well. And Solomon turned that gift in Ecclesiastes chapter two. He turned it on itself, turned it on himself and said, I'm gonna use my insight to test pleasure. And one of the pleasures he tested was sexual intimacy. And his conclusion was vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's not ultimately satisfying. It doesn't maintain its satisfaction. Now, for Rehoboam, he was to listen to Solomon's wisdom, but we can listen to Solomon's wisdom. And for us, that's listening to biblical wisdom. You see that? You understand that? It's included in the scripture. So as Rehoboam inclined his heart to Solomon's teaching, we incline ours to his as well, which is also in the corpus of scripture, which gives us the authority to speak into our lives. Incline your ear to my understanding. Incline your ear literally means cup your hand to your ear and lean forward and look at me and listen. 
<laughs> we all know what it's like to deal with a three or four year old who's distracted by everything and to grab their little sweet cheeks in our hand and look, have them look it in the eye and say, listen to me, listen to me. I'll never forget when my wife was watching the news one night, watching something and she was trying to watch on television. One of our sons, when he was young, climbed in her lap, grabbed her jaw and said, son, listen to me. He had heard that before. Interesting here, he says that you may observe discretion. You'll know how to act appropriately and your lips may reserve knowledge. What does that mean? Your lips reserve knowledge. That's critical. That means you know what to say. That's what lips do. You'll know what to say to sexual temptation and sin when it comes into your life. In other words, you have a strategy. You know how to expect and you know how to respond when temptation comes. Listen up, he says. Listen up, son. Listen up to wise up. Undertake the pursuit of God and his word and divine revelation so that you know what God's intentionality is on intimacy. Ignoring God's word, especially on this subject, is spiritual suicide. And we must help our young people and one another know these principles. This is not just for Solomon, who's a young junior higher or high schooler trying to get his act together and know how to handle sexual temptation. This is for you and me too. So undertake the pursuit of biblical instruction. Rehoboam was listening to Solomon. Our listening to Solomon is listening to the word of God. Number two, unmask the deception of sexual sin. Unmask the deception of sexual sin. That, that, that indicates that it's wearing a mask. It's intending to deceive for the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. The first thing I want you to notice is Solomon is talking to his son. So he's using the adulteress in the feminine. Don't make too much out of that. And what I mean by that is the adulterer can also be in mind here. This is talking to young men and young women about the opposite sex. He's not just talking to young men and it's not the, that the ladies are always the bad guys. Bad girls. Who is this adulteress? The Hebrew word literally means a foreigner, a strange woman, a wayward wife. It's translated in other places. Maybe the best understanding of of this idea is to see this adulterous person as anyone, listen, anyone who would encourage any of us toward any kind of sexual experience outside of marriage. Anyone who would encourage anyone toward any kind of sexual experience outside of marriage. If I can borrow from what's in verse 15 and following, the adulterous woman is any cistern that's not your wife or your husband. Again, don't take the gender too far here. Daughters need to be warned as well as Solomon's son here. In many cases, they need to have a stronger warning than the men. The lips. Back to the lips. Her lips drip with honey. Smoother than oil is her speech. It's talking about flirting, wooing. By the way, um, Anytime the Bible discusses flirting, especially in the book of Proverbs, it's always in reference to a harlot. Now there is the right kind of flirting inside a marriage. 
But be careful that we're not allowing our hearts to be pulled toward flirtation that would arouse our sensitivities in a way that, that would desire any kind of sexual experience outside of marriage. Proverbs 29.5 says, flattery is a trap. Her speech is smoother than oil. It, it's easy to listen to. She's described as tempting, smoother than oil and honey. Honey's an Old Testament image for something good that can go bad. It was so plentiful in the land of Canaan, it was called the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Proverbs 25, 16. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, lest you have it in excess and vomit it. Proverbs 27, 7. A satiated or satisfied soul loathes honey. But to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Someone said long ago, honey is sweet, but the bee stings. She's a sweet talker. He is a sweet talker. This tempter is, is someone who talks you and it's okay. I do really love you. This is all okay. God is okay with this. A little coaxing, a little flattery, a little deceit, a little assurance that this is harmless. But verse four, in the end, she is bitter, not as honey, but as wormwood. It was a plant that was very bitter on the palate. Sharp as a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword was different than a machete. A machete was a one-edged sword that was used to cut through uh, 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 plants or, or jungle or thick brush. A two-edged sword was specifically something designed for battle, for war, for killing. She's deadly. He's deadly. How deadly? Verse five. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol, the abode of the dead. She does not pander, ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Feet, that's the course of this tempter's life. And remember, this could be a, a young man or an older man who's, who's wooing someone outside of marriage for an experience, or it could be a woman. Don't make too much of the gender. Mind, she does not ponder the stupidity of weighing the gravity of cause and effect. You know what's amazing is we, in our generation, we don't just look at a person who could be a temptation. We actually have to talk about images and videos and websites and pornography. Do you think those images are pondering the path of life and the spiritual discipline of cause and effect? Of course not. Bottom line is this tempting person this wooing, uh, persuasive person is persuasive and dangerous. That's the point of this, this text. And Solomon is telling his son, unmask the deception of sexual sin. No, it's a lie. It seems like it's gonna bring you honey and sweet. In the end, it's deadly and dangerous. Unmask the deception, see the lie in it. Number three, a third strategy for pursuing purity. Understand the value of safe distance. Understand the value of safe distance. This is something we should talk to our kids about. It's something we should talk as men to each other about, as women to each other about, as couples with each other about. Understand the value of safe distance. Verse seven. Now then, my son, listen to me. It's almost, 
It's almost like he's talking to his son and now he's distracted. He's looking at, no, no, listen to me. Eye contact, come back, focus. Listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. One of the epic tales that has actually happened in history, beginning in Genesis 37, is the, the life of Joseph. Joseph, at one point, is preyed upon by Potiphar's wife. And Joseph did something very wise, very noble, and very godly in that moment. What did he do? He ran. He exercised the value of safe distance. This lady was coming on to him, trying to woo him. He knew it was outside of God's plan. She was Potiphar's wife. He was a trusted confidant of, of Potiphar, and he ran. He said, no way, not now, no how. And he ran. The Joseph principle of running is something we should remember. And listen, the time for this verse is not in the backseat of a car, the closed room of a house, the closed room of an office. It's when the very thought comes into our mind, we need to learn to run from it. Sometimes we run with our, our thumbs on the remote control and something comes on, an image comes on that doesn't honor Christ, that gets our mind going in a direction that it shouldn't and we can turn it off and not pursue it. How do you personally practice the principle of safe distance? Think about that. How do you practice the principle of safe distance? Is the glory of God in mind when you are talking to a person of the opposite sex? Someone who you could easily be attracted to? Is the weight of your reputation as a man of God or a woman of God in mind when you decide how close to stand to them? At care group, at church, in the office? Is the devastation of your life in mind when a lustful thought engages your passion? Have you learned, have you learned to run, to run from these temptations? If this is a struggle for us, the next six verses give us a terrifying motivation. Undertake the pursuit of biblical instruction. Unmask the deception of sexual sin. Understand the value of safe distance. Number four, uncover the regret of sin's aftermath. Understand, excuse me, uncover the regret of sin's aftermath. Solomon now takes Rehoboam on a field trip. And he says, before you decide to let your mind go where your body might follow, I wanna play out a scenario with you, son. What would it be like if you did this and you fell into sexual sin? Verse nine, lest you give your strength, your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien and you groan at your latter end. 
when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated instruction. My heart spurned reproof. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to their instructions, to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. What is this about? It's a catalog, this section is, of the ruin that occurs from sexual sin. Verse nine, you lose dignity and respect. Verses 10 and 11, you waste your resources either to obtain this pleasure or to cover it up. I'll never forget counseling a man when I was in California who, um, it was one of, the, one of the rare times that someone came confessing and wanting to repent who wasn't caught. He uh, uh, had been in an adulterous relationship for I think 11 years. God worked on his heart, he repented. And he began to explain to me all that he had to do over those 11 years. And after listening to him for about an hour, I was exhausted. Different email accounts, different bank accounts, different cell phone accounts, lie after lie after lie to cover hotel expenses and travel expenses and meals. And it was a constant barrage on his conscience and mind to try to create this cover-up. That's what he's talking about in verses 10 and 11. You waste your resources. Verses 12 and 13, you're filled with remorse afterwards. And then verse 14 there's public disgrace that comes. In fact, verse 14 is a powerful appeal to weigh the transient pleasure against the consequences and ask, is it really worth it? I was almost, he says, in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Everyone found out. They knew. The consequences of immorality are inevitable. They're unavoidable. It's never private. It doesn't matter if you're a bum on the streets, a senator, a president, or a pastor. People talk, spouses find out, reporters snoop, pregnancies happen, diseases spread, guilt intensifies, and God works on the heart. I know I've shared this a few years ago, but it's worth revisiting. Uh, I was reading a book years ago about this issue, and Charles Swindoll compiled a list. It's an incomplete list, but it's a, it's a very penetrating list of what you have in store if you commit immorality and it's found out. Let me quote from him. Swindoll says this, your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal and shame and rejection, heartache and loneliness. No amount of repentance will soften those blows your mate can never again say that you are a model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob him or her of trust. Your escapades could introduce your life and your mate's life to the very real probability of a sexually transmitted disease. The total devastation of your sinful actions will bring, what it will bring on your children is immeasurable. Their growth, innocence, trust, healthy outlook on life will be severely and permanently damaged. The heartache you will cause your parents, your family, and your peers is indescribable. The embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you, respected you, and trusted you will be overwhelming. If you're engaged in the Lord's work, you will suffer the immediate loss of your job and support of those with whom you work. This dark shadow will accompany you everywhere and forever. Forgiveness will not 
erase it. Your fall will give others license to do the same. And the inner peace you once enjoyed will be gone. You will never be able to erase your fall from your mind or others' mind. It will be indelibly etched on your life's record, regardless of your later return to your senses. And above all that, the name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished, giving the enemies of the faith further reason to sneer and to jeer, end quote. I think Swindoll grasped what Solomon is saying here, which is, son, think about what it would be like if you fell. Now, let me just take a quick aside here that we're gonna come to at the end. I'm not unaware that there could be people who have fallen in this congregation tonight. And there is such grace in the gospel and forgiveness that's offered. You're not permanently ruined. Solomon even said, I was almost in utter ruin. Something saved him. And we'll come back to that. Don't be derailed or discouraged. There's fresh forgiveness ahead. But what Solomon is doing with his son is saying, listen, play the tape. I, I want to, I just want to share with you, I, I've, I've taken Solomon's advice and wondered, what, what would it be like to come home and tell Kim that unimaginable or to tell Luke and John and Mark, I need to tell you something. Solomon is saying, play that tape in your mind, then erase it. Don't let her let it happen. Think about sin's aftermath and never go there where it happens. The central contrast of the chapter is now transitioning in verse 15 from the wrong woman we've just seen in verses three to 14 with the right woman in verses 15 to 19. I love this chapter. I think that Proverbs 5 is the most complete chapter on sexual purity in the entire Bible because it talks about the bad and the temptation and the failure, but it also talks about the good and what you pursue. It shows what to put off. It also shows what to put on. So we come to this fifth strategy for purity. Unlock the satisfaction of marital faithfulness or marital fidelity. Unlock the satisfaction of marital faithfulness or fidelity. Now, we do need to talk about the metaphors that Solomon is using here. He says, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. The Bible doesn't blush, as I said, when it talks about intimacy in the God-given context of marriage. And isn't it interesting that when Solomon is talking, and a cistern here is obviously the experience you have with your, uh, of sexual intimacy with your spouse. Isn't it interesting that the man with a thousand women now comes to Rehoboam and says, drink water from your own cistern, singular? You think he learned something? The inclusion is why I love this chapter of this section. Solomon is saying, 
drink water from your own cistern. It's a metaphor. A cistern was a, a deep chamber that was dug out of stone. It didn't leak and you would take water from a well to the cistern, which was a holding tank for, uh, for having fresh water away from a well. They were very, very rare to own your own. Most people had common cisterns or a common well that supplied the, the whole village or the town that they lived in. If you had your own cistern, you were extremely blessed. And Solomon is saying, within the context of marriage, you have this cistern that you can enjoy. A precious commodity. The picture was that in a dry and arid climate, you could assuage your thirst. You could satisfy your thirst, your desire, by the cool, fresh, delicious water of your own cistern anytime you were thirsty. He's not talking about being thirsty here. You understand that, right? He's talking about the desire for intimacy, which by the way, is a God-given desire. Can I say something that might sound a little odd to you? God invented sex. He thinks it's good. It's his gift to married people. When I was, uh, Kim and I were doing our, our premarital counseling, our premarital counselor said, sex is God's wedding gift. Don't open it early. It's a good picture. Song of Solomon chapter four, verse 15 says, you're a garden spring, a well of fresh water and springs that flow from Lebanon. In other words, when I want to be sexually satisfied, it happens in the context of your singular cistern, your Marriage, but you gotta be careful here. The, the idea is when you're thirsty, you go to this well and you drink and it's there for your, your taking anytime you want, but you gotta be careful with that when you translate that over into the metaphor he's describing. I spent 12 weeks teaching our collegians at Grace Community Church um, uh, when I was out there about um, dating and relationships um, and was talking about sexual purity during um, one of the ending sessions. And I may have told some of you this before. The, the afterwards, there was a line of people to ask questions. And there was this one guy who, every time he got close and someone got behind him, he got out of line and got to the end. And it happened two or three times, and I could tell, this dude wants to be the last guy I talked to. We are in the gymnasium, and so sure enough, after these questions, this one guy stands there and he's all by himself. And he, he looks around really sheepishly. He says, Rick, you're married, right? I said, yes, I am. I have three sons. This my Kim. Yes, I am. He goes, can I ask you a question? He's a freshman in college. I said, sure. He says, Rick, what's it like to have sex every day? And so I looked around and I said, I have no idea. And his face was priceless. He went, but you're married. And I said, we need to have coffee. It's not the way you think. It's not the way the movies portray it. Verse 16, should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets? 
Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. He's probably talking about procreative energies here. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then the verse that makes everyone blush, as a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and be exhilarated always with her love. He's saying that the physical intimacy that's supposed to happen between a man and a woman ought to be only between that husband and wife. But please, please, please notice it is not merely physical. Look at the last phrase in verse 19. Be exhilarated. That's a Hebrew word that means sexually satisfied always with her what? Love. It's about a relationship, not just physical intimacy. It's pursuing a loving relationship with your bride or with your groom, with your husband, with your wife that far exceeds the bedroom. Solomon was wonderfully and in a godly way infatuated with his wife. Um, At least the one that he describes in Song of Solomon. He uses language that, I don't know, guys, you can try this if you want to. He says, honey, your navel is like a round goblet. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. That must have meant something special to her. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon. Even if you don't know what Heshbon is, doesn't that sound pretty? The pools of Heshbon. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. She must have had a really long nose and he must have liked it. Your head crowns you like Carmel, which is interesting to me because Carmel always had snow on top. I don't know if she was going gray. The flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The point was, he said things that were special between them and that meant a lot to her and that meant a lot to him. He was infatuated with her. He was exhilarated with her love, not just her body and vice versa. She answers back in that, in the Song of Songs. If you've read the Song of Solomon, it's almost like reading a play. There's the the man's part and the woman's part and like the chorus part as well. If you're married, can I ask you, are you personally satisfied with your, your spouse? My wife and I, when we were younger, we um, had to save up money to go out to eat. It was, we were kind of struggling and someone said, there's a steakhouse, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. And you gotta go. This plate comes out on a plate that's 500 degrees with butter on it and it's sizzling. And the more they described it, the more I thought it's God's will for my life that I go eat that piece of cow. Well, we looked online, saw how pricey it was, and we literally saved months of date night money to go out on our anniversary to this restaurant, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. How many of you have been to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? I will go to lunch with you anytime you want to go, even though they took the one out of Kansas. Well, finally we go, and uh, they brought these steaks out, and it was so good. I remember the last bit of steak, me stabbing it and staring at it and thinking, I just don't want it to end. I just want to stare at it. I, just, I don't want to take the last bite. We had this wonderful meal, salad, bread, these wonderful sides and steak. And then at the end, they bring this platter full of dessert. 
And on that platter was Kim's favorite, which was this chocolate cake, which looked amazing. And there was creme brulee, which I liked. And this was our special night. And so I'd, I said, honey, this, you can have dessert. What do you want? You want dessert? I'll get you anything you want. You want some dessert? And she looked at me. She said, well, do you want dessert? And I said, well, do you want dessert? And the waiter's going, I'm holding the dessert. And we were going back and forth. And finally she said, I, I'm, I'm kind of full. And so was I. You know, that functions as a really good illustration that if you're satisfied and full in an intimate way with your spouse, you're not tempted by anything else. Dessert doesn't look as tempting as it does other times. Solomon is, being, is telling his son, if you're satisfied at home with the love with each other that actually spills into the bedroom, then you won't be as tempted outside. The best deterrent for sexual sin, honestly, is a healthy marriage. Now, this is not the time to go off on a parenting seminar on our kids getting married, but can I just encourage you, if if you're a, a parent of marriageable age kids, let's just say high school and up, I have... I have seen hundreds, I've done more than 250 weddings. I have seen hundreds of marriages, counseled countless people. I would far rather young people get married early than to struggle and postpone it to later in life. Those struggles seem a better and more manageable struggle than the ones that postpone sexual satisfaction in marriage and only lead to greater temptation. It's just something to think about it. Think about. Number six, the final strategy. And you had to know this was coming. By the way, everything I've said could have been taught in a psychology class up until now because it's all crescendoing to bring God into the picture. Unleash the horror of God's omniscience. Realize that God knows and God sees everything. Four, verse 20. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? Embrace the bosom of a foreigner. Four, verse 21, mark it. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and God watches all his paths. The ultimate antidote for sexual sin and the ultimate motivation for sexual purity is a good, healthy dose of the omniscience and omnipresence of God. Proverbs 15, three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Job 34, one, for his eyes are upon the ways of a man. He sees all his steps. Hebrews 4.13 There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes. And listen to what the writer has to say here. The eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, there's just judgment and an accounting coming. There was a couple that I I met with one time who, this was a sweet couple who had gone farther, they were unmarried in their relationship than, than would honor the Lord. And they actually were very sensitive about that. And they came, sat in my office, said, 
in California and said, this, this happened, we're so sorry, I, what do we do? Should we break up? I mean, they were so teachable. And whether it was cruel or not is, is up for debate, but I, I, I played out the scenario. I said, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I know someone who saw. Now, obviously they had, well, I didn't tell you, they, this had happened in a car outside of an apartment building. So um, they just, the shoulders dropped and they started saying, well, was it a roommate? No, it wasn't a roommate. Was it a neighbor? No, it wasn't a neighbor. Was it you? <laughs> no, it wasn't me. <laughs> and I said, you know what? God saw you. And they almost perked up. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Of course God saw, but that's why we're here. I think that their response is understandable because they understood that God forgives and they were, but that's also sad. Shouldn't that be the thing that shocks us most? Shouldn't that be the thing that worries us most? A.W. Tozer said, in the moment of sin, every Christian becomes a practical atheist. He may act like there's a, he may believe that there is a God, but he acts like he doesn't exist. That's insightful. Verse 22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. This sin has a way of trapping you and following you. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. You know what's encouraging about what looks like a negative in those last two verses? If he dies for lack of instruction, he lives by presence of instruction, right? That's what the guys who've been teaching through Proverbs, we've been trying to say over and over, life is in biblical instruction. Life is in biblical wisdom. Now, the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12 of Hebrews says, the marriage bed is undefiled. You know what that means? It's honorable. God blesses the marriage bed. But he doesn't bless any other sexual experience or sexual thoughts outside that. So let me address two groups of people. First of all, there are those who have not failed in this area and those who have. If you have not failed in this area, don't be too encouraged because you have in your mind. And in Matthew 5, Jesus said, listen, before God, you are equally as sinful if you thought about committing a sexual act and not done it as someone who's thought about hating a brother is of murder. What he's saying is your mind matters. How you think matters. Even if you're watching something on the internet or something that's a video and it's, or images. And you say, well, this doesn't affect anybody but me. Yes, it affects somebody else. And that's the Lord. First Corinthians 6 actually says, if you join with a harlot, you're actually bringing the, and you're a Christian, you're bringing the presence of Jesus with you in this sin. And if you think about things that you shouldn't, you're bringing the mind of Christ, which we all share with him, into that heinous thought. If you've failed in any of these areas mentally, praise God that you haven't gone 
further than that and that he's protected you and stay on that path and wrestle with it. If you have, I know our God, he is forgiving, he is gracious, he is kind. There is no sin that he stratifies as worse than others. The sin of impatience with someone put our Lord on the cross equally as a sin of sexual sin. There is forgiveness and grace. And if God has given forgiveness and grace and we are in a relationship with someone who's failed, we should be like God in that as well. How do you pursue being pure? What do you do when these thoughts come into your mind? Paul told the Corinthians, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, when your mind starts going in places that it shouldn't go, you need to own your mind and not let your mind own you. That's the basic function of sanctification. All of our decisions toward righteousness and away from sin are choices, little choices we make that end up being bigger choices later. Our, our friend, my my friend John MacArthur said over and over, staff meeting in church, I remember him saying over and over, when a man falls into sin, he doesn't fall very far. That's the last of a lot of decisions he's made. That's not the one he made that day. I think it's true. So what little decisions are we making with our eyes, with our, with our, our discussions? What little decisions are we making being exhilarated with our spouses by their love, not just the physicality of the relationship. And hopefully one day, you'll experience a relationship that was so encouraging to me with a dear friend of mine, whose name I won't tell you. He's a colleague of sorts. He's older and we were studying, uh, I was preaching this passage in another country. He was there with me. And I remember something he told me. He says, you know what? The days of sexual intimacy for my wife and me are, are far in the past. For reasons we don't need to discuss, Rick, but they're far in the past. But can I tell you, I am as excited to be married to this woman today as the day she walked down the aisle. And so I said, why, how? And he said, because I learned a long time ago to be exhilarated always with her love, to develop the friendship, the spiritual intimacy, the emotional bond that we have as a couple. And she's my best friend. Young people, you don't spend a lot of time in bed, doing what you think you're gonna do when you're married. Well, you spend some, but it's not what you think. It's all about the intimacy of being one flesh, which is your soul, not just your body, with your spouse, not just the physicality of it. Now, don't hear me wrong. God gave this as a, as a pleasure. It's not a bad thing. It's not an, a sinful thing inside the bounds of marriage. 
It's a wonderful thing. It's God's gift. But there's something way more important that Solomon says, be exhilarated always with her love. No one was intended. Remember, Solomon is talking to his son. No one is ever intended to battle for sanctification, to battle against sin in an isolated way and by ourselves. If this is a struggle with you, find someone. Men, find another man. Women, find another woman. Talk to someone about how you could have some accountability and, and some refresher on what it means to love God more than temporal pleasure and to put a context on sexual intimacy. Don't fall off the extremes of being overly interested in talking all about it or ignoring it completely and acting like it doesn't exist. Both of those can land you in trouble. Now, if you think, well, I really, really wish that Solomon said more, he's gonna give you four more discourses in the coming months on this issue from a different angle. So we're not completely done with this. You cannot fight sexual sin in any kind of victorious sense unless Jesus is your Lord and he's empowered you by the gift of his Holy Spirit to cause you to make decisions that your flesh would never make on its own. This is really about the fruit of being a Christian, not just some psychological list. That last point, unleash the horror of God's omniscience and omnipresence, is cured and solved and satisfied in the presence of Christ who sees and understands, who judges and forgives, and it all happened on the cross. So create an atmosphere of grace in your fellowship with others. Maintain a high view of God and his attributes in your interaction and talking about these things. Teach each other regularly about what God says about intimacy. You don't just have to wait for a sermon on it. Shepherd the relationships that you have with each other toward the purity that God expects. And let me say one last thing. If you're single, and that can mean a lot of things, younger, older, widowed, divorced, it can mean anything. If you're single and you think this is something that God has left off of my plate and I can't be satisfied with life, all I have to do is give you one word. Jesus, who was never married, who never experienced that pleasure and was completely, entirely joyful and satisfied in his relationship with the Father. He is the final exclamation point on where satisfaction comes from. And it doesn't come from the bedroom. It comes from our joy from knowing and loving and learning from God, which is what Solomon is trying to tell Rehoboam to pursue.